0: During the Olympic Games, it was held in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. There were 207 nations represented, a collective of 11,238 Olympians. Together, collectively, they would participate in 306 individual events. There were 28 sports and over 41 disciplines that were represented at the Olympic Games, all culminating on that final event, where every athlete represented was vying for one of these. Now, this is not an Olympic gold medal, but it is representative of a, of, a, of a time and a space in each one of their lives where they were looking to find the greatest metric of success the world over. There are 918 medals, 306 gold medals, 306 silver medals, and 306 bronze medals that set these athletes apart as the most successful in the world at that time. It causes me to question how we define success. It's here upon us again, we're in the middle of these Olympic trials where you've got people the world over giving everything that they've got, pouring themselves out, all with one hope, one goal, one dream in mind, to make the Olympic team. And of those goals and those dreams and those desires, each and every one of them would love to stand atop the podium where they will receive a bouquet of flowers and they will be awarded a medal as they hear the sound of their national anthem being played representing their country whom they represent. I want to ask you to think for just a moment how you, Would define success. It's easy when we think about athletic events to quantify success. There are metrics we use by keeping score, both higher and lower scores. In golf's case, it's the lower of the two, or if I'm playing golf, it's the higher of the two. We keep score from a very early age, don't we, academically? Early on, we learned the difference between an A and a B and a C and a D and an F. An A is worth four points, a, a B is worth three points, a C is worth two points, and a D is worth one unless something has changed. Then we have grade point averages. Now, I will tell you something that has changed. I'm old enough that a 4.0 was as good as it gets. Now you hear these kids that have these weighted GPAs. Well, I've got a 4.2 GPA. What does that even mean? How can you be better than the best? 4.0 is the best. Well, yeah, but I took these advanced classes and these, these courses and they applied for college credit. And so they actually, it's a weighted grade. So even though I only got a B in the class, it's actually an A because of the, I'm like, man, that is no different than a participation award. You either got an A or you didn't. How do you define success? In every arena of our lives, I could challenge each and every one of you that is looking forward to a time in your life where you'll get to retire to define success. And you'll likely pull up in your laptop and you'll pull up in your checking account and your savings account and your individual retirement account. And you'll look at your stocks and your bonds and your mutual funds. And you'll look at your collective net worth. And then you'll have an ideal in mind of where you need to be so that you can live on a fixed income so that you can retire. That's a metric of success. And I think that we can look at every compartment of our lives and begin to start to qualify and quantify success. But let me ask you to think about this in terms of your spiritual well-being, in terms of your spiritual welfare, in terms of your spiritual life. How do you define success? The church is really good at handing out medals. We give medals to people who attend church. We have all kinds of metrics that we use. In fact, you can't, you can't research church metrics or church health or church success without seeing a blog or a or, or, or a newspaper article that's been written that'll tell you how you know a church is successful. Unfortunately, and all too often, most of the time, they have to do with church attendance, butts in the seats. They don't really help us understand the overall health of an organization or the health of a ministry, the impact that it's having, far reaching. We have a lot of metrics that we use here at church and I'm not, I'm not in any way trying to speak disparagingly about numbers. We use numbers as a metric, not as the ultimate victory or the ultimate trophy, but as an opportunity to determine the health of a growing ministry. And so we measure impact. We measure things like 175 children and over 80 volunteers that were involved with Vacation Bible School last week, and over $2,000 that was raised that we will gift to Washington County Food Bank. We have metrics like in just a few weeks, I believe it's six weeks, we've served almost 2,000 people from our Go Grill. How cool is that? We have all kinds of metrics that we use. But even then, I would argue that those are all a byproduct of success. Those in and of themselves, they are not success. You coming to church, that is a byproduct of success. You giving of your time, your talents, and your treasures, that is a byproduct of your success. Volunteer hours at the church, that is a byproduct of your success. I hope and I pray that by the end of our time together collectively today, you will better understand what success looks like in the eyes of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you right up front, grab your Bible. Grab your Bible and turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to raise your hand right now where you're sitting and let one of our ushers who are coming around the worship center right now bring you a Bible. This is a gift. This is your Bible to have and to keep. We want you to bring your Bible with you each week so you can follow along in the text So that you can write in the margins the observations and the applications, the things that the Lord speaks to you, also questions. And we want you to take this with you throughout the week and meditate on the word. We want you to continue to go back and reference and study to show yourselves approved. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15, where we've been for many, many, many weeks. And we're going to spend a majority of our time in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 8 through we'll call it 23 today. Father, as we jump into your word together now, redeem this time that we have together. Use it for our good and for your glory, God. I pray that as your word goes out, that it will not return void. May it come alive in each one of us. Father, I pray that we would open up our hearts and our minds to be receptive to what you wanna do today. If there's any area of our lives that we're holding on to, that we have yet to surrender to you, I pray, Lord, that you would pull back the veil of our hearts and reveal it to us. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would encounter you today so that our lives would be changed forever. And now, Lord, I have the the opportunity to get to share your word, and I pray that I would preach with authenticity and accuracy in ways that matter and make sense, rightly dividing your word as an act and an attitude of worship to you and you alone. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you're ready to get after 1 Samuel 15, say amen. amen. All right, here we go, 1 Samuel 15. One day, Samuel said to Saul, it was the Lord who told me to anoint you king of his people Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. So we're introduced to three characters straight away. Samuel, prophet, Priest and judge, Saul, the first king appointed and anointed over Israel, and Yahweh, the creator of the universe. There's something interesting that we find in verse 1 that we're gonna carry throughout the text of chapter 15. And it's that, that word message. In the original Hebrew language, the word actually sounds like coal. And it, it, it's, it's intended to grab your attention, to say, hey, pay attention. God has a message for you. This is a strong urging. Anytime in scripture you see something repetitive, you need to pay attention. You need to go back and try to understand why it's repeated so many times. In this instance, it's because the message that God has for Saul, the message that God has for the nation of Israel is critical It's critical for how they view success in their faith. Now, this is a historical narrative. It wasn't written to Steve Doolin and it wasn't written for Andrew Anderson. It wasn't written for Rachel Sweeney. It was intended for the nation of Israel under uh, the transition of a theocracy where they have followed God's leadership solely and they have moved into this dynastic monarchy where they have asked God for a king. Having said that, this does reveal truths about the character of our creator and demonstrates for us how we are to interact with God through the way that his children have interacted before us. And so it's important then that if God says, hey, I have got a message, pay attention, lean in, hear this word from the Lord. It is going to inform how you and I view success as followers of Jesus then I would say it's pretty important to pay attention. Verse two is the beginning of the message. Samuel to Saul, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle an account with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. You say, well, there's a lot going on there. There's a prophetic message that has come full circle. And there's this extreme response in that God wants Saul and the nation of Israel to annihilate the Amalekites, decimating them to the point of ruin. Where does this come from? Well, remember, Samuel is not only a priest and a judge, but he is a prophet. The word prophet means truth teller. It doesn't mean diviner. It doesn't mean fortune teller. It means that he speaks the truth as an ambassador or as a spokesperson on the behalf of our God. So he's saying now the time has come for the Lord to settle account with the nation of Amalek. Because of the way that they have sinned against God and against Israel. You say, well, pastor, where do we see that reference? I'm so glad you asked. You're going to want to grab your Bible because it's not going to come up on the screen. But if you take your thumb leave it in 1 Samuel and flip to your left, it's the second book of the Bible, the Old Testament book of Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 17, and I want to read together verse 8 all the way to the end of verse 16. So we're looking for Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. This is after the Israelites have have been freed from captivity, from oppression by the hand of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. This is after Moses has received the word from the Lord and he goes and he commands Pharaoh to let his people go. This is after numerous signs showing the sovereignty and the power and the authority of God where Pharaoh seemingly relents and allows Moses and his brother Aaron and the Israelites to flee. And they cross the Red Sea. And as it closes, we see that the Israelites begin their time in the desert dwelling or the wilderness period. Here's what happens straight away. Imagine crossing the other side of the Red Sea. You're wiping your brow. We escaped that. Check this out. Beginning in Exodus 17 verse 8. While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses and Aaron and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. And as long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses, his arms soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. And as a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. And after the victory, the Lord instructed Moses... Write this down on a scroll as permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar there and named it Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. And he said, they have raised their fist against the Lord's throne. So now the Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. This is prophecy fulfilled. This is God Through the prophet Samuel to Saul, the king of Israel, honoring his word. Saul has this message that he receives from Samuel about the battle that he's about to go into because of the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites are an interesting group of people. They are entirely nomadic, they don't have a place that they call their own. They are desert dwellers, they are actually from the line of Esau. Any of you who knows Old Testament and Old Testament history, you know about the brothers Jacob and Esau, the divide, the coming back together. And you know what kind of man Esau was, broad, burly, valiant warrior. He was an angry man. These are direct descendants of Esau, these Amalekites. These Amalekites, if I were to give you an adjective to describe in modern vernacular what they were like, they're like pirates, They made their living and their lifestyle based on creating fear in others and robbing and stealing and pillaging for their own gain. They were pirates. They were bullies. And God had had enough. You know, in Exodus 20, you read the Ten Commandments. But if there were to be an 11th commandment, and I know I've said this before, I think it bears repeating. If there were to be an 11th commandment, that commandment would likely read, thou shall not bully. God doesn't like a bully. And not just from other nations against Israel, but anytime we see that Israel acts on their own authority, they're proud and they're haughty and they begin to bully other nations, God will humble them. You see, the heart of God is to care for the orphans and the widows and the least of these. And he'll do whatever it takes to care for them. And so here we've got these Amalekites who are abusing power and authority and people. They're robbing and they're stealing and they're pillaging. God, again, has heard the cries of Israel and he responds. He gives this message, this call to Saul or Samuel for Saul to go and destroy the entire Amalekite nation? You see, that seems extreme. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. Why is that? Why would he want to absolutely annihilate all of it? And the answer is simple. Because there is no place in this world for the things of this world to coexist with the creator of the universe. You see, what happens, especially culturally speaking, this was not out of place. What happens is if you go to battle, you wage war and you start to to take for yourself the best of whatever it is, you leave a doorway open for idolatry. You begin to explore the gods of the Amalekites. You begin to to explore the culture of the Amalekites, the, the relationships of the Amalekites, and it leads Quickly, to idolatry, and idolatry is the most egregious sin you can have, that you should have no other gods before you, and so God, not because he, he despises or hates people, but because He wants to protect people as holy as set apart unto himself. He says in, a, in, in effect, by, dem, by demolishing the Amalekites, that we need to get rid of everything so that we do not leave a doorway for idolatry to take place. And if I'm being honest, we still have Amalekites in our lives today. You're going to hear throughout the story where we think we're starting to get ahead of ourselves or get, get some, some leeway or some headway rather, but then we'll see just the dangers that are so prevalent when you allow the Amalekites to coexist with your creator. Verse four, you start to see encouragement. Saul responds immediately. This is good. Saul mobilized his army at Talaam. There were about 200,000 foot soldiers from Israel and 10,000 men from Judah. Why is that unique in here, 200,000 plus 10,000? Judah was the closest city, the closest tribe of Israel to the Amalekites. They would have experienced the oppression and the battles more than any other. So the fact that they're they're pointing out that there are 10,000 additional individuals from Judah just says, these dudes, they are mad. They've got a vengeance. They are ready for war. So we got 210,000 people, 10,000 of which have had enough. It's a Popeye moment. We've had all we can stand and we can't stand anymore. Verse 5, then Saul and his army went to a town of the Amalekites and lay in waits in the valley. And it says that Saul sent this warning to the Kenites, move away from where the Amalekites live or you will die with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up from Egypt. And so the Kenites packed up and left. Interesting fact I want you to think about. There is a prominent figure in the nation that is referenced here, the Kenites. It's a man named Jethro. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It should because Jethro was the father-in-law of who? Of Moses. Jethro was the father-in-law of Moses and he had shown care and concern not only for Moses but for the nation of Israel. You think about it, Moses overreacts when he sees a Hebrew slave being abused By an Egyptian, he responds by killing that man. And then he flees because now he's a felon on the run. And as he runs, he he flees Egypt and he ends up in the desert. And he comes across a beautiful woman there who will end up being his wife. And part of their culture is to bring someone into the family. And so here is Zipporah and here is Moses and here is Jethro. We are introduced to Jethro and Jethro will bring Moses in as his own. He will allow him to be a part of his family. He will show kindness to Moses when Moses had nothing and no one. And then you think about this again, Moses in Exodus three is going to go and he's going to have this radical, unbelievable encounter with Yahweh, the living God of the universe in the form of a burning bush. And in that encounter, God is going to call Moses to go and do the unthinkable, to go back to the place where you are a fugitive at large, and to go before the man who holds your fate in his hand and ask to let the rest of the Hebrew people go. So Moses will come down off of that mountainside experience, along with his family, and he'll go to Jethro and ask for his blessing to take his wife and their family, Jethro... The Kenite will give his blessing. Moses, Aaron, their family will go back into Egypt. If you know the story, the Egyptians relent. At least we think so. They end up at the Red Sea. Pharaoh and the Egyptians come after him. God parts the Red Sea. Moses and the Israelites make their way across. The water closes and literally swallows up Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And it's the Kenites who will care for the physical needs of Moses and his people. It's the Kenites who will walk with them and welcome them with loving, open arms. So God awards the Kenites' safety. They're living in the region of the Amalekites, And in God's sovereignty and his provision, Saul sends word, you got to get out of here. We're going to war. You guys have been found righteous in the eyes of God. You helped his people. We want you to leave. We don't want you to be hurt in this attack. It says here in verse 7. Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to sure east of Egypt. Yes, this is cinematic. You can hear the, the the fight scene. The music is coming up. The bass is low. It's carrying throughout the theater. The auditorium is full. People are captivated by this. And it says that Saul and his army captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep, goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs. Everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what. Was was worthless or of poor quality. Oh, this is so anticlimactic. They did what God asked them to do, didn't they? Almost. Almost. But how many of you know that those 11,238 Olympiads? Only 918 of them got a medal. And for the rest of them, there was a lot of almost moments where they were looking longingly at the award, at the prize, at the trophy, at the, at the medal. And they just knew that they were almost there. Now Saul, he doesn't see that it's almost. In fact, he thinks he's won the entire war. But it's almost What he does is he goes throughout his life. God has given him a clear edict, a clear mandate through the message that the prophet Samuel has given him. And he says, I want you to annihilate the Amalekites. Don't keep the king, don't keep the people, don't keep the cattle, don't keep the possessions, don't keep anything. And Saul goes into battle and he's so proud of himself for everything that he's done that he sets aside for himself these trophies for himself. Verse 10 tells us even more. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king for he has not been loyal to me and he's refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. There are two critical points of conversation that we have to have right here, church. The first is where it says that the Lord said to Samuel that he was sorry that he ever appointed Saul, king of Israel. Theologically, this is a conundrum, at least on the surface. Apologetically, people argue, isn't God perfect? Yeah. Is he complete? Of course he is. Is God entire? You bet. Does God make mistakes? No, God does not make mistakes. Then why is God apologizing to Samuel for making Saul king? Isn't that that right there a, a confession? Isn't he letting him know, look, I made this mistake. I am so sorry that I ever appointed this man to be king over my people, Israel. And the answer is no. If you look and if you study the original Hebrew language, that word, that word for sorry is remorseful, but in the sense of, it's not remorseful in that I made a mistake, but of a broken relationship. He looks on at Saul This man that he has set apart, appointed and anointed to be king not once but twice over the nation of Israel. And as he sees that Saul, under his own volition with human responsibility, makes the choice, the willful act to step out of favor of God and walk in absolute disobedience. His heart is broken. He says, I am so sorry. I am sorry for Saul and what that means for our relationship. And I am sorry for the nation of Israel, how this man has led them astray. I am broken over this. He is broken over the relationship. He did not make a mistake. He is broken over Saul's choice. The second thing that we have to have a conversation about is Samuel's response. You see what it says? When Samuel heard this message from the Lord, he said, God, you're right. That man's an idiot. God, I could have picked somebody better. God, I tried to warn you. God, we never should have given the people what they wanted God, we should have seen this coming. I mean, he even self-deprecates. Remember what, what Saul says of himself? Ah, I'm, I'm the son of uh, uh, of Kish and I'm of the tribe of Levite, uh, 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 of Benjamin, which is the, the least of all these. I'm no one, I'm nothing. We should have seen this coming. Isn't that what Samuel says? I told you so. And then he goes around to everybody in the nation. He says, look at what a complete nincompoop. I don't use that word. I don't even know where that came from. The Lord gave me a filter on Father's Day. Congratulations. I would have said moron, but God put nincompoop in my mind. Samuel goes around to the nation of Israel and he says, look at that idiot. He made a mistake. Look at what he did. And he starts to talk. Did you see see how Saul was disobedient? Did you see how he didn't listen to God entirely? Did you see what he did? It was so selfish. It was reckless. It was completely self-absorbed. Isn't that what Samuel does? No, no. In fact, it's the extreme opposite. It's a juxtaposition. It says, Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. Friends, I have to ask you to consider and even answer this question. When was the last time you were so moved in your spirit at the sin of someone else that it broke you? When have you interceded? On the behalf of a brother or sister in Christ that has walked away from the Lord, that is actively walking in sin. I touched on it last week and I'll just, by way of reminder, share with you again that we disguise self-righteousness and spirituality with prayer. It's really gossip. We say, oh, did you see, did you see what, what Russell did last week? Oh, God bless his soul. We should pray for him. You're not interceding on his behalf. You don't care about him knowing the Lord and fully surrendering his life to Jesus. You just want an opportunity to talk about him and make sure that everybody around you knows that you're in the know. We find our identity in what we know about others. It is wrought with sin. But what bothers me even more is as a pastor, one doesn't need to look very hard to find the flaws of man. The last 18 months in the church, the church, not our church, the church collectively, devastating. You know what about guys like Robbie Zacharias, the greatest apologist in the last 100 years? What about guys like Carl Lentz, one of the most influential pastors of Hillsong, New York? And we see their sin. And you know what I hear even in circles of pastors? This is what I hear. This is literally the conversation that I have with other pastors. (laughs) What an idiot. It's guys like that who give us a bad name. He went to seminary. He's got an education. He carries the title pastor. And so because he's a moron and makes those mistakes, now everybody around assumes that all pastors are the same way. What a jerk. That's real talk. You know what I have not heard? We need to pray for them. Let's just bathe them in prayer right now that their hearts would be broken before the Lord and that they would be restored entirely and completely. We take this opportunity to point out the flaws and the failures of those who have fallen away from the Lord rather than intercede on their behalf. Friends, I'm asking, I mean that seriously. When was the last time you prayed for someone, sincerely, honestly, and earnestly, that it broke your spirit because of the sin in their lives. Not only that, but Samuel doesn't stop with prayer. Look what Samuel does. In verse 12, early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul, and someone told him, Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. And then he went to Gilgal. He went to set up a monument to himself. Before we are too quick to judgment about this nin, nincompoop, was that the word I used? Yeah. Before we are too quick to judgment about how this man sets up monuments for himself, let's examine our own lives. What do you call your monument? Oh, you've got one. You may have more than one. This week, this message, what are your trophies? What are the trophies of your lives? Is it the car that you drive? Is that a monument to yourself and your success? Is it the house that you live in? Has that become a monument to yourself and your success? Is it your children? Are you living vicariously through the things that your children do that they are a walking monument of yourself and your success? Is it your IRA? Is it your bank account? Is it your church? What is your monument? Verse 13. I love this. I love this. I love this. I love this. If you can, I encourage you to highlight, circle, underline, italicize this. Verse 13. When Samuel finally found him. Do you know what it means to finally find some? What has to happen before they can finally find him? that there has to have been an exhaustive search. I love that Saul is off doing his thing, living in sin, and Samuel is broken for him and pursues him. It's not just enough that he prays for him at a distance, but he steps into the mess and he pursues him so that he can share the truth in love with his brother that is living in sin. He pursues him when he finally found him. How many of us, take an active role in finding those far from Jesus and sharing our faith with them. There's far too many of us that are conflict avoidant. And then there's another sub-segment that are way too passionate about conflict. But I would tell you that according to Matthew 18, the Bible says, if a brother or sister sins against you, that you should show them the error of their ways. And if you win them back, you've done a good thing. But how can you show a brother or sister the error of their ways if you don't first have a broken heart for them and then pursue them in love? Who are you pursuing that is not walking with Jesus? Look at this, verse 14, or verse 13. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's commands. Now I want you to start to pay attention to some of the pronouns. I have carried out the Lord's command. Look at Samuel's response, verse 14. Really? Really? You've carried, all the Lord's, really? Then what is all the bleeding of sheep and goats and lowing of cattle I hear, Samuel demanded. God asked you to do Do away with all of it. Don't spare the king. Don't spare the sheep, the cattle, the calves, the babies, the men, the women, any of it. Get rid of it all. What is all that ruckus I hear in the background? Look at Saul's response. Saul said, it's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, cattle. Well, just a few verses ago, he said, I have done what the Lord has asked. And now that there's sin being identified, he's starting to blame cast. How many of us, when we are presented with a hard truth in our life, rather than being responsible and dealing with the culpability of our brokenness and the error of our ways, will start to point fingers? I may be bad, but they're worse. He's looking in the mirror and he doesn't see that it's that bad. He said, it's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Saul admitted, but they are going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We have destroyed everything. This is what I call the mirror metric. Every one of us has looked into a mirror. And we have different metrics to determine the success of what we see. Is our makeup done just right? How about our hair? Accent, jewelry, the way our clothes fit. This shirt's been driving me nuts all day. What, what is it? What do you see looking back at you? What kind of person do you see when you stare in the mirror? And then when you have responsibilities, you start to do little things and, and you start to feel really good about yourself. You're looking in the mirror and you're saying, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so bad. I'm not so bad. Look what I did. I I did what the Lord asked. And you're looking in the mirror and you you start to start to be pretty proud of what you see looking back at you. But the mirror metric says look, while Saul is looking through his own perspective, what happens when you put the word of God in between the mirror and the man? And you use this as the ultimate filter. Are you living a life worthy of the call that you've received? The Bible says that as followers of Jesus, we should have nothing to do with darkness, with sin. Because what do life and death have in common? What do darkness and light have in common? What do God and Baal have in common? And yet we, we justify our junk. We use culture as an example. I've heard people use the church and the gospel to explain their sin. And so here's what happens is, Saul's feeling really good about himself and about what he's accomplished, but then Samuel uses the mirror metric and says, stop looking at the mirror and start using the word of God and hold yourself up, your actions and your your, your motives to the word of God. Is it consistent with what God's called you to be? Christian, I would ask you, when you look in the mirror, and then if you were to hold up the word of God as a metric in front of your eyes, every dot and tittle, do you look the same? Are you living in the ways of the Lord? And here, here, Samuel verse 16 says it again. Stop. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. Here it is again. The word, the message, you've got to pay attention. And Saul says, what did he tell you? Verse 17, Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself. Remember, he says, I'm of the smallest tribe of all of Israel. Are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? And look at verse 20, Saul justifying his junk. But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I did. I carried out the mission that he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops, they brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So the issue is an issue of obedience. You see, the issue isn't an issue of trophies or medals or awards or report cards or profit and loss statements. The issue is an issue of obedience. He said, but I did what you said. But here's the the hard truth this morning, my friends, is that partial obedience is entire disobedience. Disobedience. Partial obedience is entire disobedience. We come to church, volunteer a couple of hours, give a couple of dollars collecting our our medals. But God has called us to sacrifice everything, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Here's one. It's easy to come to church and love on the kids for VBS and love on the people around us. But the Bible doesn't say love the Christians. It says love those who hate you and pray for those who persecute you. We can come into church, and if I'm honest, Satan will actually use a good thing to keep us from honoring God in all things. It's good that we're together. We should come together to mutually encourage one another. We should come together collectively to sing because when we do, it's a, it's a choir of individuals that have been worshiping God collectively Monday through Saturday, that come together Sunday to share this worship experience as a community. We should give of our time. I was reading in my own personal devotion about men like Bob Sweeney today. say well Bob Sweeney was in the Bible Ah. here's what I read Dr. Sweeney in Titus chapter 2 it says that old men should give their lives away to the next generation and that young men would do well to follow the leadership and the example of the saints before them I want to pause for a moment and tell you that Reach Church is a multi-generational church. We have five generations represented in this church. At Vacation Bible School this week, Grandma Jane was here serving all week long. Five generations. Unbelievable. If you don't have somebody in this church that's mentoring you, or if you're a saint that has a little bit more experience than others and you're not mentoring somebody, we're missing it. We're missing it. Now that's not a part of the message. That was just my own personal devotion this morning, and I'm sure it was tied in at some point to this message. I got to figure out where. Hold on. <laughs> then my troops brought back. Oh, yeah, metrics. We can look and say, "Well, I I prayed this week. Isn't that good? I, I did. It. I studied the Word. I did a devotion." as a staff every week we get together and Steve will meet with Russell and, and I'll meet with Joey and we'll ask seven questions. And one of the questions is, are you reading your Bible? Yep, I'm reading my Bible. The next question is, where are you reading? Hope. Oh, uh, second hesitation. It's wrong answer. Yep, I'm reading my Bible. I read from Titus and this is what the Lord spoke to my heart. I read my Bible. Do I, I Look at this medal. I read my Bible. I gave a few dollars in the coffers so that we could do cool things like, like VBS. And, 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 and I'm even going to volunteer one time a year to help out in the kids' ministry, just not the nursery. <laughs> and and we, start to, we start to award ourselves, even little things. I didn't flip that person off that cut me off as I was leaving church today. No, I didn't either. <laughs> We start to we start to award ourselves for these things that we do. Saul is saying, "But look at all the good that I did! Look at all the good that I did! Look at all the good that I did! I study my Bible so that I could be shown approved. I'm doing so much good in our community. But let me tell you what the Bible says about our trophies. The Bible says that these, the best of what we have to offer, the best that we have to give, is like filthy rags. Filthy rags. Every penny we could give everything away." And if our heart isn't right and we're not acting out of obedience, the very best that you have is nothing more than a filthy rag in the kingdom economy. You say, well, then what in the world do we do? How are we successful? Pastor, you talked about 207 nations, 11,238 Olympiads. You talked about the, 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 the 918 medals that were given out in the 28 sports and the 41 disciplines. Those are metrics for success. And you talk about all of the things. how do we qualify and quantify success as a follower of Jesus? I'm gonna give you four words this morning that I want you to write down and I want you to commit to memory. And it is these four words. Look here, look here, starting in verse 23. But Samuel replied, verse 23, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your trophies, your medals, your merits, or your obedience to his voice? Listen obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams Rebellion is as simple as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you've rejected the command of the Lord, he says, but I did it. No, no, no. You did a little bit of it. And a little bit is an entire rejection. You rejected the command of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. You want the ultimate metric for success as a follower of Jesus. It's not the number of life, life groups you go to, although I think everybody should be in a life group. It's not the number of times you attend church, although I think everybody should attend church. It's not the number of dollars you give, although I think everybody should give with a glad and a, sincere heart out of radical generosity it's not the number of prayers you pray although I think every one of us should pray without ceasing it's not the number of times you read the bible though I think every one of us should be studying the word of God to show ourselves approved the ultimate metric of success as a follower of Jesus is this obedience is our success how many of you this morning would say well I'm I'm halfway there. I've got one foot in the door, but I left the door open for the Amalekites. There are Amalekites running rampant in my camp. We justify our junk and we don't think that those Amalekites, it's not a bad, it's not a bad thing. It's not a big deal. It's just it's King Agag. It's just some of the Amalekites. What, what could be so harmful? Are you kidding me? That's like asking an alcoholic to meet you for a good steak at a bar. What sense is there in that? That's like me, morbidly obese, saying, well, the China buffet is right across the street. I'm just gonna go there for lunch and get some tea and green salad. I can have all the good intentions of the world, but you put one of those crab ragoons in front of me. <laughs> Give me that wonton soup. Give me some orange chicken. Chicken. Some broccoli beef? Some Colonel Taos chicken? With extra peanuts? Come on. You say, Pastor, if you're going to start talking about food like that, you better pray right now. It's time for lunch. Listen to me. What I'm saying, what I'm saying is that we can leave no question. We can ne- leave no room for the Amalekites. No room, no room, no room, no room. One of my best friends in the whole wide world, in the 21st century, grown man chose to give up his cell phone. He does not have a smartphone. He has a track phone, flip phone. Do you know why? Because he didn't want to leave the possibility that he might be tempted to look at pornography. That whole surrender, is it uncomfortable? Yeah. Is it a sacrifice? Yes. But the reward is so rich. To be free from your addiction to pornography? To be free from the idols of this world? What wouldn't you give to be free from idolatry? Friends, I have to ask this morning, are you living your life in absolute and total obedience? And I've used a lot of physical metrics, but let's talk about some of the underlying metrics. What about stress in your life? Anybody struggle with anxiety here besides me? You say, Pastor, you come across as so confident and sure and maybe even a little bit cocky sometimes. If I do, I apologize and I'm sorry. That's never my intent. And number two, it's a defense mechanism. For my own insecurities and anxiety. And I find that there are too many times in my life where I don't trust God enough to be sovereign over everything. I'll let Him be sovereign over some things, but is God good? Is the God who conquered death? I mean, literally, think about this. I want you to pay attention here. Lean in. Lean in. Is the God who gave His Son Jesus Christ? to live over 30 years a perfect sinless life and die on the cross where he says into your hands I commit my soul to be buried in a borrowed tomb only three days later to be resurrected from the dead conquering life so that we might have life. Is that God who can do that the same God who can restore your marriage? Then stop worrying about it and pointing out all their flaws and ask the question, are you being obedient to God in your marriage? Man, man, Are you loving your wife like Jesus loved the church? Because the Bible says that He gave His life for the church. You are so consumed and caught up trying to make sure that she's submitting to you that you're not dying for her. And then you complain that you've got a crappy marriage. What? That's like going back to China buffet and going to the buffet line and then complaining about how fat you are. Put the fork down. Get out of there. What are you doing? Like, I want you to understand, I am not casting at, uh, stones at you. I have literally been sitting under the weight of this message all week because there are areas in my life that I have openly been sinning. No, I'm not having an affair. No, I am not cheating on my taxes. No, I'm not stealing anybody or robbing anybody. No, I haven't done anything egregious like that. But there are the little quiet corners of my life where I am not totally, totally surrendered to God. Where I say, God, I just, I want to control that. One of, the, one of the areas of my life that I'm learning to surrender is my right to be angry at people who wrong me. It's my right to be angry, but it's my obligation as a follower of Jesus to forgive. Where in your life have you been so caught up evaluating the trophies of all the good that you've done? And there's nothing wrong with these metrics, by the way. My children have a room full of these things. But as young as I can remember, you ask any one of my kids, Caden, what have I said to you about sports? What have I said specifically about soccer? Come here. He didn't know I was gonna say this. Come here, speak into my microphone so they can hear you. It's not who I am, it's just something that I do. Soccer is not who he is. It's just something that he does. And we challenge him to do it all for the glory of God. And so we can award, in fact, that medal right there is a medal from a massive the largest tournament in the the Western Hemisphere that Caden got to be a part of. Some cool stuff. I'm proud of that. And I think it's okay to be proud of your accomplishments, but are they your gods? Are they your idols? That's what you have to ask and answer. All right, so just a couple things to think about. (laughs) The band is gonna come out right now. And we're going to close our time together in worship. I'm so grateful, as difficult as it is, this some, as difficult as this is sometimes. I'm grateful to God for the distinct privilege and honor to get into His word together. I want you to know that I love you and that I'm for you and that as a church, if we can walk alongside you. As you learn to surrender, total obedience. We more than welcome that opportunity. We, we would invite you. We would love to do that with you. On your way out by the Connect Center, some staff are going to be there. You can come by me. You can even go during the song. I'll have some of our team members out in the lobby ready to pray with you, to talk with you, to listen. Lord, thank you for today, for our time together in your truth. May it resound, may it resonate in our hearts beyond these four walls and these few moments. May we live in absolute and total surrender to you. Beginning with me, Lord, search me. Search my heart, test me and try me. Reveal the wickedness in me, the areas of my life where I'm not wholly surrendered to you. Father, I confess that, I confess that I am, All too often I am quick to anger. And I'm sorry. I surrender that to you. Your word says be slow to anger, quick to listen, and slow to speak. So my prayer is that I would be obedient to that. Help me to give up my right to be hurt and angry in favor of the commission and the call in my life to walk in forgiveness. I pray that you'll put in each one of us a spirit of encouragement and strength right now to have the hard conversations that we need to have with ourselves and with you and with others around us. In the same way that you were broken for Saul and Samuel cried out on behalf of Saul, I pray that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours, break our hearts for those that don't know you, for those that have professed faith but are walking in sin. Help us to passionately and intentionally pursue them out of love and integrity. Lord, we love you. We lay it all down, total, complete surrender, and help us to find our identity and our success through obedience to you and you alone.